Hello and welcome to Who's Truth, Who's Power, a six-part podcast produced in partnership with Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. I'm Suzanne Allen, a cultural thinker, and I'm going to be exploring leadership and other topics through the lens of Indigenous wisdom. I'll be talking to experts to give us some insights into how Indigenous and First Nation wisdom can help us all consider why thinking about power from a non-Western perspective could help us, our communities, organisations and our wider society live more happily. Today I have the pleasure of meeting with Cynthia Wesley Esquimaux, former Vice Provost at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay and Aurelia, where she is now the Indigenous Chair on Truth and Reconciliation. Hello, good morning, good evening, good night. I don't know where you are in the world listening to um, our second podcast of Who's Truth, Who's Power. Welcome, Cynthia. Um, Again, it is so nice to be uh, talking to you. Can we just kick off by asking some questions? How are you? Where are you? And can you tell us a bit about what you do and your work? Yes. Hi, good morning, good evening. Again, same thing. Where are you in the world? Uh, I'm actually in Aurelia uh, at this moment. Uh, My name is uh, Cynthia Wesley Askema. I'm from the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation, which is in southern central Ontario. We're about 40 minutes away from where I am in Aurelia right now. I actually work at Lakehead University. I've been there for about nine years, uh, part of it as a vice provost in Indigenous initiatives. And for the last uh, six years or so, as the chair for Truth and Reconciliation, So a lot of my work is about public education, about uh, conversations across the country, uh, conversations with other countries sometimes, about the work that we're all, I think, quite determined to get done, which means bringing us back together again as a a globe, as a planet. So I think that's that's such a good place to start that you know, one of the shared values, the ambitions that we have is this idea of bringing us together um, as a community, as a society and organisations and as a planet. And it seems very clear to me that really we can't move forward without each other. We are really, really interconnected. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But we're going to talk about it in the context of leadership and to a degree organisations and maybe um, around countries as well. So I guess there's going to be me asking you a few questions, but feel free to bat a few back. But I'm going to kick off with this. What does Indigenous leadership look like to you, Cynthia? Well, I guess the best way to describe that is to give you a, a an anecdote, like a story of of Indigenous leadership in action. And I and and the one that I go to quite often that immediately comes to mind is uh, when one of our, our our national chiefs was first elected, Sean Atlio, and I think it was like two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. So it was, you know, so it was a while ago. But what I what happened was um, Perry Bellegarde was contesting the leadership they you know he was running for the same position and it was a very tough fight in, in fact it meant a 24 hour uh, circumstance where the chiefs kept being called back to re-vote and so they must have got, got called back at least nine times to vote again all through the night and at seven thirty in the next day the next morning 
and the, and the reason I, I go back to it is because you can hardly get Canadians, I don't know about the UK, but you can hardly get Canadians to vote once, you know, to, but to come back and vote nine times over the course of a 24 hour uh, stream and nobody got any sleep. Um, they did this. And anyway, at, at 730 in the morning, Perry Bellegarde acquiesced to Sean Atlio, uh, the leadership. And so Sean took it. Now, the interesting thing about it was Sean didn't say, you know, na 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 na, I took it, get lost. Sean actually immediately called all his people to the front of the room, and they did ceremony for Perry. They, you know, t they they sent him goodwill, and they they prayed for him, and they thanked him, and they did ceremony for a good hour for all of that uh, that had happened, so that they would leave this situation in good in in a good place, in a good space. And Perry Bellegarde subsequently became uh, national chief later on uh, after Sean. But it was an amazing example of what Indigenous leadership could look like. And also during that same time period, I had a number of young people with me. And we would actually go into some of the plenary rooms to listen to the conversations as we're you know, leading up to the vote. And, and in those rooms, Sean and Perry and the other people that were running, they spoke about what they wanted to do you know, what their intentions were, how they planned to make things better. They never, ever once attacked each other. They never, ever once said, you know, that guy, why would you vote for him? He's a jerk. Never. And I thought, what a great example for all these kids, many of whom were non-Indigenous, to see in action. So that's what Indigenous leadership looks like to me, is this view that we're all important that we all have value that we all matter and we be and we need to be respectful you step up to the plate i respect you for that you know what's um what's fascinating to me about that um and i just wrote something down is that in a lot of work i do which is around organizational development so really helping organizations get from a to m and plotting out the steps one of the challenges has become spin. So when mm. you talk about these two leaders, Sean and Perry, and when you talk about, you know, one yielding to the other and the other, this is the thing, it feels like another overused word here, genuinely and authentically. But actually what you're saying is leadership, like our own personal lives, is interconnected. And you can't lead without considering the space of those around you and that actually we're all part of the same extended team. So what mm -hmm. we feel has happened, or certainly I feel has happened for many organisations, spin has become central and spin feels like it's about saying one thing and doing another. Yeah. But what you're saying... Yeah, in Indigenous leadership, is it consistency? Is it, is it, like, how do we, you know, if someone's sitting here who's a spin master, how do we talk about what I think you're saying, which is that that won't work because leadership can't, leadership and spin, they can't sit together. No, they can't. They can't sit together. And that's why we are where we are. That's why we have situations uh, like the United States and now Canada with all of the occupation that's going on across Canada right now that is very much mirrored against the you know, United States and the, uh, the, the storming of the Capitol. And we have this, this 
comfort everywhere. People feeling like they cannot trust the politicians. They cannot trust government because government is going to lie. So the spin has created that horrible division between the people and their leaders. And that is not something that we would ever try to achieve. In fact, in our, in our, a lot of our societies, in Haudenosaunee society, he who wants to be chief will never be chief because we don't want people in there that are only doing it for their own sake. They're, you know, if you're going to be a leader, you're, you're going to give your all, your heart, your soul, your determination, your, your everything to the people. That's why we're putting you there. And that in itself is quite an interesting thing, whether we're talking about policy, politicians, uh, leaders, CEOs of, of large, what we call Fortune 500. I suppose the question is the skills that took you there may or may not be the complete set of skills and toolkit that you need to lead. Right. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot, and I think it's really, I think it's interesting in a societal context, but we're talking about leadership and organisations and policy here, is this idea of truth and reconciliation. And and for me, again, I bring it in as a black British woman who feels like so much in the UK is structured against colony and empire. And I'm sure there are some people listening who are like, what? Colony and empire and business, how do they link? But for me, there's this really direct link. And actually, a lot of the work I do is around trying to enable people to come with their truths. But actually, Mm -hmm. you know, a truth is one thing. But if we're not all on the same page as a truth and we're not reconciling, how does that idea of truth and reconciliation sit for you within leadership and organizations and maybe Canada? Well... It doesn't sit very easily. Um, you know, I've been probably doing reconciliation for my entire life and trying to achieve some balance in our, our relationship, you know, between Canada, you know, the, the people of Canada, Indigenous peoples, whether it's about treaties or whatever it is historically and contemporary and into the future. And it's just not happening because we have not achieved the the, the ability to see ourselves and our humanity in a good way. So the spin and the lies and the, you know, the distrust, it's endemic in our society today. So how do you create conciliation or reconciliation for, for damages, grievances that have happened in the past when people can't see past their noses? You know, we're, we're really in a very difficult place. And in organizations, structures, the culture that is in an organization is determined by the leadership. And if the leadership is, is, um, is about itself, is about more, is it about, is only about capitalism and is not about people, then you're not going to get any kind of a shift there. It's very difficult because there's no cultural sensitivity. There's no cultural intelligence. You know, there's no, no emotional intelligence in an organization like that. Uh, it's a, it, it's a challenge because even indigenous organizations who you would think would do a, a better job quite often have, have concerns because there's historic trauma that has not been addressed. So there's lateral violence. I mean, there's there's so many things about the way we do things today that need to be unpacked and people need to really think about before we can actually make any kind of a shift. Other countries are opening up their truth and reconciliation commissions. Australia started theirs in 2021. You know, Finland has just launched theirs um, this, you know, this year, early you know, in February. They're trying to address historic grievance. 
And they're trying to bring everybody into that conversation. It is, and I keep telling people, you know, in Canada, you know, it was not a, it was not an Indigenous story. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions are not about Indigenous peoples. They're about everyone. Everyone needs to be part of the conversation. And that's a really challenging thing for us. So I don't know how we get there. I mean, in Canada, the Kamloops story, I don't know how familiar you are with the unmarked graves. Can you you just elaborate that for, I am, but just for the, any audience or someone listening who isn't? Yeah. So the, the, you know, the Indian residential schools in Canada were a pretty horrific story. A lot of children, uh, it's something like 50% of the children that went into Indian residential schools in Canada and probably the United States actually died there. They died of violence. They died of illness. You know, they died of who knows what they died or they died trying to escape uh, and run away. Or they got they died when they got home. But anyway, there were a lot of uh, burial sites right on the schools. Something that I think people should think about: Why would we have burial sites at schools? But anyway, they they the people that have gone to those schools have been talking for a long time about um, the children that didn't never made it home. And and then in the last year, they actually started to do ground search um, with you know different kinds of uh, equipment, and they found at the Kamloops they found uh, two hundred and fifty graves of children that were buried there. At another school, they found seven hundred and fifteen. So there's thousands of children that are buried at these schools that are coming up. And, you know, when you talk about Indigenous leadership and contemporary Indigenous leadership and what is it that people need to do, you need to see the kind of determination and relentlessness that is coming out of our leadership to actually have these grievances addressed. We don't get to reconciliation until we get through the truth. And the truth is, there's still a lot that has not been addressed. There's still a lot that is underneath the rug. And there's still a lot that needs to be brought out into the light before we can actually talk about how, how do we get to this next level. So for me, as a black British person born here, which is where I'm recording, um, at 56, the idea of truth and reconciliation is central to any work that I do. But I just want to draw a line for anyone who's sitting here going... You're jumping around, Cynthia and Suzanne, and I don't see how this is connected. If your history, if you have had trauma in your history and you have been denied equal opportunities and, and if you, if everything you're doing is from a place of, a, of not having the same power or equal power, it is going to impact you. And that means, really crudely put, people who are working are not able to thrive equally and so for those of you who are listening who might be like yeah but you know you've just turned this into a race or issue or a color issue it's not because everybody knows someone or we all have differences whether that is learning differences whether it's around class we have huge issues here in the UK around class whether that is around uh, disability whether that is around gender everything that we're talking about today around truth and reconciliation in different levels and in different frames has to be addressed and actually I would I would posit which is my poshest word that I know that in an organization if you cannot have the idea of truth and the idea of space that everybody no matter who you are can speak to their truth and have it heard and then have it reconciled organizations can't develop and that's why for me the idea of truth and reconciliation in the context that Cynthia has talked about the context of life death history 
generations is important. But as a concept in its own right, if we want to think about leadership and we want to think about going back to this idea of whose truth, whose power, what can we learn from indigenous leadership and wisdom? This is it right here. So, Cynthia, that was a bit of a monologue for me. I didn't even know I had it in me. If I was to say to you, how do you want to see indigenous forms of leadership utilized well within organizations, within politics? Um, what would you say? How, how could we do better? What are the practical things we can do? Well, I think that we have to think about some of the indigenous tenets that are, are very much a part of how we view the world when we're healthy. When we're, when we're in that place where we actually can create space, when we actually have wisdom, we, we also understand other ways of dealing with each other. And, you know, so the Mi'kmaq bring in this concept of two-eyed seeing, you know, where you, you can see through that Western lens and you understand the, the, you know, how a corporation or an organization institution runs, but you also bring into it your, your, your teachings and your ability to see through a, a, a more ceremonial lens. You know, you bring in the idea that of humanity. And that's, I think, really important. That's what organizations, organizations may thrive, but the people may not thrive within those organizations. And that's really the difference there. We bring in reciprocity, the idea that everything you do comes back at you and that you need to be bringing in good things so that good things are coming back around. The kinds of circles of care that enter into a conversation, you know, rather than, you know, sort of seeing it from a very hierarchical standpoint, you know, you see everybody in the circle and you, and, and everybody's treated well and treated equally and you know they may be doing different kinds of work and they may be being paid different kinds of levels of that work but they're still a valuable member of the of the community in which you work so that respect for different differing knowledges you know that that everybody's bringing in something and those gifts um should be utilized and that you know like we use those seven teachings here for those purposes you know that we have to all have courage we all have to have respect we have to have humility we have to be truthful we have to be honest we have to learn how to love and those things take us through to wisdom and we don't get to wisdom until we actually master the first six and that's that's pretty amazing and one of the things that that for me is i can see a trajectory i do a lot of uh, organizational development work and as a team as an organization we deliver executive coaching and leadership and over the last decade it's really moved right it's really moved mm -hmm. from more of a transactional approach to it to actually thinking about courage wisdom we're doing some work with an organization around how you as an executive leader understand yourself and how you relate to others and that really right. feels like we're starting to to at least accept if not believe if not learn from what indigenous leadership could bring us you know we've got like three minutes left i want to say this um, i'm going to come back to you to finish up cynthia and just ask you mm -hmm. to kind of share the three things you'd like us to take away but while you're thinking about that I'm just going to say a couple of things for me that have come up. One is this has been about leadership and organisations, but that word interconnected comes right back up again. The second is truth and reconciliation is such a huge topic. And for many in the UK and outside of the geographic regions you've talked about is an ideal, is a new concept. So we are going to pick that up in a future podcast. But for the moment, Cynthia, back over to you. Last words to you. Well, 
Well, thank you. I, I think that the, the word that comes up uh, in my mind as we're having this conversation is respect, that we have to have respect for each other and we cannot move forward if we don't. And this, you know, this willingness to be inclusive and, and, and understand that everybody brings something to the table and we just have to allow the table to be set instead of thinking that we own the table, it's all about us. The realities are we would do a better job of being uh, humanity and saving our planet from the devastation that it's currently experiencing and the, and, the, and the possibility of water wars and other kinds of things happening in the future if we just start to respect each other and the planet on which we live. That's what I see as being paramount in, in any conversation we're having today. Well, I'm going to wrap up by saying thank you. And just to some of the kind of CEOs of the larger organizations that I work with, I understand that tension between trying to think about how to bring in some of these practices with some of the challenges you have around stakeholders and KPIs. But I would leave us on this note. You know, those big organizations, the politics, the policies, this is like, this is what sets the course for the world. And so we have to, as organizations, have these conversations because we are in many ways underpinning as organizations what society looks like. Um, Cynthia, thank you again. Um, in a previous podcast, I asked Cynthia for her Instagram and Twitter handles, but it's so much easier. Cynthia, I'm just going to ask you to say your full name again so people can Google you and read about some of the amazing work that you do. Yeah, it's just, <clears throat> excuse me, it's Cynthia Wesley Eskima, E-S-Q-U-I-M-A-U-X. And you can just Google me and all of those things will come up. I, I mean, I, I think Twitter is the same thing. It's just Cynthia.Wesley or Cynthia Wesley. So Brilliant. easy to find, actually. <laughs> thank you so much and goodbye. Okay, thank you. So this is all we've got time for today, unfortunately. But I would like to thank the amazing Rai Moran once again for talking with me today. Thank you for those who are listening. This has been Whose Truth, Whose Power. One last thing. If you want to find out more about the work I'm doing on Power and the Brain, my socials are at Aline and for everything. A-L-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. Hopefully catch you next time. Whose Truth, Whose Power was produced in partnership with the Bounce Centre for Arts and Creativity and Rai Moran, Associate University Librarian at the University of Victoria. All six episodes were funded by the British Council, Farnham Maltings, the High Commission of Canada in the UK and Canada Council for the Arts. A massive thank you to them for funding us and enabling us to do this. The podcasts were hosted and created by me, Suzanne Allen, and produced by the super awesome Isaac Hustable. They were edited by Ruben Huxtable and project managed by the fabulous SJ Martins. For any information or more information about the topics discussed today, head over to allaboutpower.com or aleneand.com. Or if you fancy the socials, we are on at aleneand, A-L-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. Thank you so much to everyone involved and thanks to you for listening.